good to see everybody today and to realize that God is in control of everything and that he is the one who makes everything happen. I do want you to know about a time of prayer that we are going to be having in October, which is Friday. Can you believe that? October is already Friday, and uh, I don't know how it's gone so fast, but it has. And uh, maybe that's a good thing. We'll get through all the rest of this and get on to some better things. And so at 7 o'clock on Friday, we want to be able to come, and for the whole month of October, just be able to offer some prayers. You're able to give us some of the prayer requests that you have, as well as send in those things online, and we'd like for you to participate in that. You may participate at home. You may participate here. And so we would just want to encourage you to be part of, of praying for our church, for our nation, for families, and for all of those things. Well, we've been talking a little bit about Jesus holding things for a while. We first started with Jesus holds everything, gravity, atoms, water. He is what makes things spin. He is what keeps the world going. He is what holds everything together. Then we talked about Jesus in his church, that he holds his people together. And so we talked about that and, and how he is the one who keeps all of his church. And and it is difficult, isn't it? It's not always easy. I mean, church people, they're, okay, well, you realize they've been sinners before. And so sometimes there's not always easy to get along with. And so we need Jesus there to hold us all together. And then we talked about marriages. I mean, even if you pick the perfect wife, did you know sometimes she won't agree with you? (laughs) I don't understand that, but I mean, that's what happens sometimes. And so Jesus is the one who gives us an example with his bride, the church, in how to hold marriages together. And so we talked a little bit about that and looked at how the scripture shows those things. And today we want to talk about how he holds his disciples. And so we want to be able to go to John 17 first because that is the place that talks about the time where Jesus is able to pray for his disciples. It's in the upper room the last night. And his prayer is about his disciples. And it's revealing. He first talks about the glory of God and about that He's asking God to glorify him. He says that people might know that we work together, that we are together. And so in John 17 and verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, as you, you look at this passage and look at what Jesus is talking about, it's a very intimate time where he is describing his prayer to God, but he's talking about his disciples, and he's talking about what happens with them. And I, this is one of the things we don't really talk about very much, but he keeps talking about, I kept them, I guarded them, I didn't lose anyone from them. And so he, he talks about as if God gave them to him. And so when you look at all of this, he talks about this idea of that we didn't really make the choice. If you look at verse 6 and verse 9, also I am praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those you gave me. Well, what about the others? Are there any others that weren't given? And it doesn't seem to be indicating that there's just other random people who come to Jesus. Well, we always thought that we did that on our own, didn't we? I mean, we decided we were going to be a Christian. We look back in Scripture, and Jesus called his disciples to follow him. After all, he walks by, follow me, and they leave everything and follow him. So it looks like it was their decision. And as you look at what he's saying about this whole process, it is a lot bigger than what we have ever understood. There's a lot more to it than perhaps what we thought. And so this passage describes that they know that everything has been given to Jesus, that Jesus came from God, and that God has sent Jesus into this world, and that he gave him the words. And Jesus says, the words that you gave me, I have now given to my disciples. And so he's talking about that. They believe that you have been sent. And so we can see and understand the way in which he's describing this, and I'm praying for them. And I'm also praying that they will be one, even like we are one. Everything that's mine is yours, and yours is mine. And, and he's talking about the people that he has, that they all belong to God, and they're given from God to him. And he's trying to describe the unity that they have and the unity he wants his disciples to have. Let them be one like we are one. Well, how does that unity take place? Well, first of all, there's a really strong bond, we assume, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all part of one being, one person, one God. And so, naturally, there's going to be a really close connection between them. And as we think about this and understand, it's this kind of connection that he says, I want them to be just like that. Not like they're a whole bunch of different individuals who came together and said, all right, we'll try to get along. But no, we are the same being. We belong to the same family. We are part of each other. And so the standard he's setting is very high. Well, it might help to know if we're not just our own will, 
But God is the one who is giving us to Jesus. And Jesus is accepting us. And it was not just our decision that was done. Okay, stay with me because it gets really confusing at this point if you let that go too far. Because it almost sounds like, well, then what? He predestined? Not at all. But there is a way in which he is involved in this process. God has a hand in our following. He doesn't predestine us. But those people who believe, who are able to come to him, we see this whole idea introduced first in John 6, and I don't really have time to go into all of it, unless you're willing to sit here for... Yeah, I didn't get a single hand or amen or anything. So you're going to have to go back and read John 6 and look at what he says there just after he feeds the 5,000. He talks about the bread of life and he talks about the Father drawing people and giving them to him and that Jesus will draw people to himself. And so this concept is not just a matter of saying, well, nope, we decide. No, God is in that process. How to explain that specifically, that's a little bit tougher. But he talks about this, and I think we need to see it and understand it. Let's look a little bit more at the prayer Jesus offers in John 17. He says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so, that, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, it almost seems like you're in on a secret conversation between Jesus and God. And so it it, it takes a little bit for us to understand this. Jesus is speaking about coming to God, and he speaks about the joy he wants to give to his disciples. He says, I've given them your word. They see it, they understand, they get it, and the world hates them for it. Well, that's never a good thing. But that's what he knew would happen. The world hates them for it because they're no longer of the world. They have been transformed. They are changed. They now are more like Jesus. They are different people. Their training is finished. And they don't have the same attitude and the same outlook as they had before. But Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I just want you to protect them from the evil one. Well, wouldn't it be easier if he just took us out of the world and said, let's everybody go to heaven right now. But that isn't what he says. I'm going to leave them here. I'm going to leave them in the middle of this world. I'm going to leave them in the middle of this sinful world who seems to have a lot of influence by the evil one. And I want you to protect them. To keep them, to realize what they have. And so I want you to have this place in the world but away from evil, living among them but not of them. 
living in a hostile environment. And that's where we are. It's all around us. If only a mask would work on sin. Wouldn't that be great? That's all we would have to do. But it seems like it takes a little bit more. But I want you to recognize there is a place where Jesus keeps us in this world. And so he says, sanctify them in your truth. In other words, make them holy by the truth that you have, by the words that you have spoken. Your word is truth. And so Jesus sends them into the world that they might know this truth and have this kind of holiness. But what does he mean, keep them from the evil one? How is he supposed to do that? How do you keep your kids from evil? Well, you tell them what you want them to do. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to smoke that. I don't want you to drink that. I don't want you to go around those people. I don't want you to be over here. I don't. And so you set all kinds of guidelines and rules, right? Isn't that what Jesus does with us? I want you to, and he's going to keep us and protect us from sin by all the rules that he makes. That's not what it says. In fact, I don't think that's very effective. And if you're a parent and tried it, you know it's not very effective. You can make all the rules you want, but it seems as if we have a different idea. It's not by forbidding us to be around evil. In fact, he's saying, I'm putting you in the middle of evil. And evil's going to be around. In fact, he didn't say, God, keep them from sinning. It doesn't say that. He says, I want you to keep them from the evil one. And so I think it's important for us to understand God's protection and what he's really trying to describe here. Keep us from Satan. Keep us from the influence of the evil that has personality in this world. Is a person here. And so keep them away from that. Sin's going to be around. And yeah, I guess we choose, right? We choose when we're going to sin or not sin. We're never forced into it. You know, the good old phrase, the devil made me do it. After Ashby's class, it seems like that's what people are saying. (laughs) Well, I didn't have a choice anyway. That's just the way we are, and I was made this way. And so that's where we are. Uh, Not true. And there are bigger forces at work in this world than what we understand and give credit to. Let me share with you some more things about how this happens. And the reason why maybe saying Jesus needs to hold us more than ever now. It's not a comfort hold. It's a protection from evil. As Jesus is in the upper room and as Jesus is going at the end of his life, going to this time, we see that he tells Peter and the rest of the apostles, that one of them will betray him. And then he turns to Peter, and he talks him about, you're going to deny me. Well, no, that can't be right. Listen to what he says in this conversation in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Well, there's the warning And we just talked about how Jesus protects us. And does this seem like protection? When he says, you know, there's all these forces around us, and guess what? You're not going to make it. You're going to fail. You're going to deny me. And he says that to a guy who's really strong. Not only that, but he says there's Satan who is there, and Satan is demanding something. Satan is demanding to have you. Okay, has Satan ever demanded to have you? Would we even know if Satan demanded to have us? What would happen if Satan made a demand like that? He's not demanding from us. He seems to be demanding from God that he has Peter. And he said, he wants to take you and sift you like wheat. How many of you sift wheat? I don't either. I buy flour and I give it to my wife. And that's the most I know about it because that's not what I know how to do. Sifting wheat is separating the wheat from the chaff, and so I've got a good picture of it here. They would stack up the grain. They'd need to break the chaff off. Chaff is more susceptible to wind, and so it looks like an explosion, doesn't it? Let me see what's real and what's not. And so Satan says, I want to explode your life and see what falls back. See what's real, because that's what they would do is take that fork and throw it, and with all the force that they could, it would then separate from the kernel of wheat. It would fall back down because it's heavier, and the chaff blows away, and Satan demands that happen to you. And Jesus says, But I prayed for you. Okay. That's great. You prayed for me. Is that going to do it? No, you're still going to deny me. In fact, it's going to happen before morning, and uh, Peter tells him about his devotion. I am so devoted to you. I'm willing to go to prison with you. I'm willing to, I'm willing to die for you. I will do anything for you. And he says, that's fine, but you're not going to make it through the morning. Well, that's not very good news, not very encouraging. At least you could, you know, say, hey, Peter, I'm so glad you have such great faith. You believe you're going to make it, you're going to do well, and that is not what Jesus does. Which honestly gives me some kind of comfort. Because no matter how dedicated we find ourselves and no matter how much we promise, we are going to be faithful and we will always do what God says. We find ourselves in a moment of weakness that it doesn't happen. So how did Jesus keep Peter like that? He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
What does he mean turned again? He says, when you have stopped sinning, realized your mistake, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. And what's understood in that is the fact that Jesus is going to accept him back. That Jesus knows about this whole process. It is part of the way that he keeps him. And so now he is keeping him, holding on to him through this process that he's going to go through. It doesn't mean we won't sin. It means we won't stay in sin. It doesn't mean we don't deny Jesus in some way because all the disciples run away at Jesus' arrest. But Peter seems to come back around to follow. He doesn't run very far and he comes back in order to watch the trial. Let's look at what the Bible says about this denial. Luke 22 and verse 54, it says, Then they realized, when they, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together. Peter sat down among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how that he had said, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus was right. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew the timing of it. He knew exactly how it was going to be. How is it that Jesus knows about your next sin? Does that give you any comfort? Yeah, that doesn't help me a bit. <laughs> I thought I was doing well. I mean, why would he know about the next one I'm going to do? The servant girl comes first. It's you. You were with him. No. But does Peter really understand? I mean, he's focused on the trial. His master is being tried for for being the Lord, and he is the Lord, and they're going to kill him, and he doesn't want that to happen, and so he's not focused on the fire, he's not focused on the people around, and somebody else comes up to him and says, I think you're one of them. No, I'm not. I'm focused on something else, and then another guy later on says, but you're Galilean. I can tell by your accent. He says, you were with him. No, I am. And about that time, it is so classic as you look at the story because you can see what happens with them all they're all there they know it's Peter they know who he is and he is denying it as if we can deny our sin and say well it's not me I didn't do it it's not me and the rooster crows and Jesus looked at him 
He is close enough to see the look Jesus gives. What does he get out of that look? Except the fact that Jesus knew. He already knew. And he already told him what was going to happen. But not just that he was going to sin, but also that he was going to come back. Also that he was holding him in his prayer. That he was right there with him. Jesus kept him. How is this Jesus keeping us? Peter just doesn't recognize the temptation when it comes. We'll pay more attention, right? We'll see it coming and we'll not do that because we will be better. He denies that he even knows Jesus, but he didn't really mean it. I mean, isn't that how ours happens? Like, kind of accidentally on purpose sinned with... There's white lies, right? Not just... Now he failed. And it was a simple denial to a stranger. Did he even have to answer back? But it's not just that. You realize he'd fallen asleep on Jesus in the garden when he was praying. And he had specifically said, I want you to stay here and pray. And when he came back, Peter's asleep. At three times he fell asleep on Peter in the garden. And then when the soldiers came, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle it. So he takes his sword and he cuts off the servant. Well, you don't attack a soldier. You attack somebody safe who doesn't have a sword. But he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and that was wrong. I mean, Jesus even heals the guy and puts his ear back on. So how can that happen? He was trying to stand up for Jesus. He was trying to do what was right, and, but it was wrong. And he's just wrong on so many levels in the last 24 hours. And then they had all run away, and then Jesus is alone at the trial. So he's trying to go back and stand up for Jesus. And you ever felt like that? And Jesus is telling God, I have kept Jesus holds disciples. He holds on to them. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he protects them from danger because danger is going to happen. After all, Stephen was stoned a little bit later and died a violent death. There's going to be persecution. There is going to be trouble in the church, and he doesn't protect them from trouble. So what is he exactly protecting them from? He doesn't protect the church financially. You can see it gets to the point where Paul has to go and and solicit other churches to be able to send contributions back to Jerusalem because of the famine. And so that means he didn't protect them from famine either. And so what kind of protection is this if it's not from disasters or famine or finance? He doesn't protect them from enemies either because after all, Rome had come in and conquered them already and now it doesn't seem like the enemies are letting them go at all. What kind of protection is this? They do stand up at Pentecost, all of them. 
Peter preaches, 1,000 are baptized. They do start the early church. And they all teach. They all fulfill their ministry. They all do what they're supposed to do. They preach the gospel to the world, and it's when they had turned again from the denial, from running away from all of their sins. So what does Jesus do to keep us? I think he keeps our heart. He protects our heart. Peter believes in the love of God for sinners. And he needs to be able to tell the story to people who killed Jesus that something can be done about the fact that you killed your own Messiah. And Peter essentially lives the story. I denied him. I said I didn't even know him when it wasn't even a big deal. Would they have called the soldiers over and said, hey, there's another one. Get this one. Probably not. He protects our salvation. He protects our spiritual life. He lets us believe in the grace. How hard is it to keep someone saved? I want you to think about that. If you have a friend, how hard is it to keep them saved? I think it's incredibly difficult. And we see lots of people who come and lots of people who want to follow Jesus. And, but then it doesn't last very long, right? How does Jesus keep them involved in worship? Keep them serving Jesus? Keep them with the Spirit alive and active in them? Keep them in the middle of a pandemic to where now they are faithful and they are serving God. I mean, you guys are great because you're sitting here with masks on. Well, some of you. Some of you are breathing, actually. Uh, But how do you do that? Where Jesus keeps us in the middle of all the obstacles, in the middle of all the things that are going on. Even just in normal times. Well, I think he holds us all with nail-scarred hands in his grace. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It doesn't mean difficult things won't come. It doesn't mean Satan doesn't want to have you and control you and make you serve him. But he keeps us from the evil one. And that evil one won't be there. And we seem powerless in a lot of situations. We can't always be strong and do what we should. It seems like it's logical. We should be able to. But we also look at our past history and realize where we fail. Jesus prayed for Peter. He was interested in Peter. He talked to Peter. He told him, here's what's going to happen. And I can tell you this morning, you're going to sin at some point. And you may already be struggling with your faith. And you may already be having a difficult time. Because you've been sitting at home trying to watch a TV. Or you've been coming here. 
and trying to breathe with a mask on and trying to sing with a mask on. And all of these things are difficult. How can we keep our faith? And maybe you haven't. And what Jesus says is when you come back, strengthen your brothers. There's more work for you to do. It's time to get moving. Jesus is not giving up on anything. Not giving up on anyone. And so maybe we need to pray for each other too. That when we are able to strengthen brothers, and it will make a whole difference. We're going to have our struggle to be able to follow Jesus. And we give each other time to be faithful and encouragement to be faithful as Jesus talks to Peter and says, I'm praying that you're going to do it, that you're going to make it, and I am not going to let Satan have you. So can we pray for you today? Do you need to be baptized today? What is it you need to do today to be close to Jesus? We want to do that for you. We recognize the temptations that come, but let's all be close to Jesus because He is always there.